Hello, I'm Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today, we are talking about torts. First, a few disclaimers. Disclaimer 1. This is just an overview. You are always responsible for understanding the case law that supports any rule of law. Disclaimer number 2. Always remember you take the professor, not the course. So if by some chance you are listening to this and I am not your professor, keep in mind that I may emphasize and even include, or not include, areas of the law that are different from your professor. In this podcast, we will discuss causation. Causation is the third element of negligence. Before we get to the specifics of causation, let's put this in context. In order to prove negligence, the plaintiff must show duty, breach, causation, and harm. In our last podcast, we discussed duty. It is now time to discuss causation. Proving causation means proving that the breach of the defendant's duty caused the harm that the plaintiff is seeking to recover for. At the outset, it is important to note that when proving causation, you must show that the defendant's breach of a duty caused the harm. So, for example, let's say the defendant was speeding at 5 miles over a 55 mile per hour speed limit. While driving at 55 miles per hour, the defendant, for the first time, suffered an epileptic seizure, passed out, drove off the side of the road, and ran into a gas station where, while still unconscious, defendant hit and injured the plaintiff. Plaintiff sued defendant. When proving negligence, you must first show that the defendant breached a duty. Well, defendant had a duty not to speed, and he breached that duty. In fact, you could even say that he violated a statute. But then, you must show that the breach of his duty, in this case his speeding, caused the harm. Well, really, it was the epileptic seizure that caused the harm. So even though the defendant breached a duty, it wasn't that breach of the duty that caused the harm so plaintiff can't prove causation. And if you do show that the cause was the epileptic fit, you must show that the defendant had a duty not to drive while having an epileptic fit. That only works if the defendant or a reasonable person would be aware of a risk that he would have an epileptic fit while driving. Since this is the first time that the defendant had an epileptic fit, and since most people don't have epileptic fits while driving, there's probably no breach of a duty. Okay, let's get on to proving causation. There are two prongs to causation and negligence, the factual prong and the legal prong. Factual causation can be proven by showing either that but for the defendant's conduct, the harm would not have occurred, or that the defendant's conduct was a substantial factor in bringing about plaintiff's harm. In other words, a plaintiff may show factual causation by demonstrating either but for causation or a substantial factor. Let's discuss but-for causation first. Under but-for causation, the plaintiff must show that but-for the defendant's breach of her duty, the harm would not have occurred. So let's take a new, easy hypo. Let's say the defendant was texting and driving, and as a result, she hit the car in front of her. Defendant had a duty not to text and drive. She breached that duty when she texted and drove. But for her texting and driving, defendant would not have hit plaintiff's car. But-for causation is usually reserved for instances where there is only one defendant. Having said that, the cause may not be as direct as the hypothetical I laid out above. Let's change the hypo. Let's say that instead, defendant sold Barbara a razor that had a faulty wiring. Barbara used the razor properly, 
but the wiring short-circuited while Barbara was using the razor on plaintiff's beard. We could say that but for the defendant selling the faulty razor to the barber, and but for the barber using the razor on the plaintiff, the plaintiff would not have been injured, therefore connecting everything together. Again, keep in mind that when discussing but-for causation, you must be certain to identify the duty that the defendant breached and that the breach of that duty caused the harm. So where a plaintiff could not prove that the defendant's faulty maintenance of its stairs was the reason a man tripped, causing a gun to go off, the court found that the but-for prong of causation was not satisfied. So that is but-for causation. But for the defendant's breach of his or her duty, the plaintiff would not have been harmed. But-for causation is usually used in instances where there is only one defendant. What if there are multiple defendants causing multiple harms, or multiple harms, but you can only identify one of the defendants? In those instances, we use the substantial factor test to prove factual causation. Under the substantial factor test, the plaintiff must show that the defendant's breach of a duty was a substantial factor in proving the plaintiff's harm. The substantial factor test is used when two or more actors or factors work together to cause one harm. The case of Hill v. Edmonds demonstrates this nicely. In Hill, the defendant negligently drove her car, in which plaintiff was a passenger, during a snowstorm. She hit a tractor-trailer truck. The truck was parked in the middle of the street with no lights on. So there were two separate instances in which someone breached the duty, the driver and the truck owner. These two acts worked together to cause one harm. Think about it. Even if the driver was driving negligently, she might not have hit anything if there hadn't been a truck in the road. And the truck, alone in a road, did not cause harm. These were two separate acts of negligence, either of which did not cause the harm alone, but where separate acts work together to cause one harm, both parties are substantial factors in causing the plaintiff's harm. Sometimes the plaintiff can't find one of the actors that caused the harm. Consider the Anderson case. In that case, a fire negligently set by the defendant railroad company merged with a fire caused by an unknown source. Neither fire independently would have caused plaintiff's harm, but together they caused one harm. The court found that the defendant could only be responsible if the jury found that the defendant's fire was a substantial factor in causing plaintiff's harm. Now, when you read the notes, you will notice that some states have addressed the difference between but-for and substantial factor. The best rule of thumb that I can offer is that the but-for test is the primary test to use, except in instances when there are two or more concurrent independent causes of harm, like the case with the truck in the road or the two fires, in which the substantial factor test is more appropriate. Now, what happens for the purposes of proving causation when more than one person breaches a duty but it is clear that only one of the actors caused the harm. This is the case of Summers versus Tice, where two hunters negligently shot a plaintiff who suffered an eye injury from one bullet. Plaintiff was able to show that both hunters breached their duty. However, and keep in mind this was only one harm, plaintiff could not show that but for one of the defendant's hunter's bullets, the plaintiff would not have been harmed, because the plaintiff did not know which hunter shot the bullet that hurt his eye. Note, these parties did not work together to cause one harm. Rather, one of the two parties caused a single harm. The plaintiff could prove both breached a duty, but could not prove which of the parties was the but-for causation. 
The court held in instances where there are two or more defendants and one innocent plaintiff, the burden shifts to the defendants to prove which one is responsible. Otherwise, they are both fully responsible to the plaintiff. Okay, that's factual causation, proving that the defendant's negligence is a cause and fact of plaintiff's harm. Remember, the plaintiff must show either that but for the defendant's breach of duty, the plaintiff would not have suffered harm, or that breach of defendant's duty was a substantial factor in causing plaintiff's harm. In addition to proving but-for causation, the plaintiff must also show that the defendant was the legal cause, also called the proximate cause of the plaintiff's harm, designed to draw the line at legal liability for a defendant. Just because a wrong is a cause of injury, it does not mean that the wrongdoer should not have to pay. Generally speaking, wrongdoers should only pay for harms that are within the ordinary scope of human understanding. Something is within the ordinary scope of human understanding if it is a reasonably foreseeable cause that results in the duty of breach. Keep in mind, legal causation is an arbitrary line that is drawn, beyond which a harm is considered to be too remote to allow for compensation. For example, a railroad company is responsible for the first house that is burned down when it negligently set a fire, but not any other houses beyond that. This is an arbitrary line that courts, and in some instances statutes, have drawn because otherwise someone who sets a negligent fire might be responsible for an endless amount of damage. By the way, this is an interesting rule that might be revisited in light of all the wildfires happening out west. That's my editorial comment. Paul's graph is the quintessential case to demonstrate legal causation. Mrs. Paul's graph was standing on a railroad platform. At the other end of the platform, two men, one carrying explosives, were trying to squeeze onto a train. The train foreman pushed the man carrying explosives onto the train, causing an explosion, which resulted in a scale at the other end of the platform hitting Mrs. Paul's graph. Now take a moment and think. The railroad agent, on behalf of the railroad, had a duty to protect people on the railroad platform. The railroad agent breached the duty by shoving someone onto an already crowded train. But for the agent pushing the man on the train, the explosive would not have dropped and resulted in a scale exploding at the other end of the station, which in turn fell on Mrs. Paulsgraf's head, which injured Mrs. Paulsgraf. So we have a duty, breach, and factual causation. The issue now is whether we have legal causation. Can we say that it is reasonably foreseeable that when a railroad agent pushes someone on the train, that someone standing on the other edge of the platform will be hurt? Justice Cardozo wrote the majority opinion and one that is followed by most states. According to Justice Cardozo, who concluded that there was not legal causation in this case, the risk reasonably to be perceived defines the duty to be obeyed. In other words, duty should only extend to those who are in the reasonably foreseeable scope of danger when a person acts negligently. And it is up to the jury to decide whether a plaintiff is in a reasonably foreseeable zone of danger. Stated simply, Justice Cardozo would cut off liability at some point, the point where the harm is no longer a reasonably foreseeable consequence of defendant's breach of duty. Justice Andrews would extend liability to everyone, since in his opinion, people have duties to society as a whole. He would pretty much not cut off legal liability of a defendant who breached a duty. These opinions in the context of the Paul's graph facts. Justice Cardozo said that a railroad agent can't reasonably foresee that harm would come to someone standing at the opposite end of a railroad platform from pushing someone onto the train, 
so the railroad agent could not protect against a breach of that duty. Justice Andrews said, we owe a duty to everyone. Under Andrews, who wrote the dissent, the railroad company would be responsible. So a defendant is responsible for all foreseeable harm that results from a duty breached. But sometimes an intervening act breaks the chain of foreseeability, relieving the negligent defendant of liability. The acts of a third person, or nature, will interrupt the causal link if the conduct is extraordinary, unforeseeable, and independent. For example, defendant plane company negligently failed to fill its plane with gas. The plane was forced to make an emergency landing on an island where a volcano erupted. The volcano is said to be a superseding intervening cause of harm, and therefore there is no liability for the defendant. Contrast that with the situation where a defendant ships plaintiff blueberries in an unheated car in the dead of winter from Maine. A cold spell sets in. Defendant is liable since the cold spell is a foreseeable intervening cause. So a person is responsible for foreseeable results even if there is an intervening cause, if the intervening cause is also foreseeable. A person is not responsible in instances where there is an extraordinary intervening act. We like to say coincidence breaks the chain of legal liability. Response does not. So that's legal causation. A person is responsible for all foreseeable consequences of his or her action. It must be foreseeable to the reasonable person and not necessarily to the defendant. And whether something is foreseeable is a question of fact. All right, that's causation. There is no need to discuss causation until you have identified the duty the defendant owed and that the plaintiff breached that duty. When proving causation, you must demonstrate but-for causation and legal causation. Also remember on an exam and in practice, show that but-for the defendant's breach of the identified duty, the harm would not have occurred, or defendant's breach of the duty was a substantial factor in causing plaintiff's harm. So in proving factual causation, you must demonstrate either but-for or substantial factor. In addition to proving factual causation, you must also demonstrate legal causation. According to Justice Cardozo, legal causation is satisfied in circumstances when it is reasonably foreseeable that the defendant's breach would cause the plaintiff's harm. Justice Andrews would go further. And in either instance, one is relieved from legal causation if there was a superseding intervening cause that breaks the chain. All right, that's causation. Hope this was helpful. We'll see you next time on Law to Fact.